Hello and welcome to The Moore Show. I'm your host, Kevin Moore, and for the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'll be joined with Professor James Fetzer, who is one of the many 9-11 experts and scholars for 9-11 Truth. The scholars have concluded that senior US government officials have covered up crucial facts of what really happened on 9-11. The scholars are convinced, based on their research, that senior US government officials have deceived the nation about crucial events based in New York and Washington DC. These experts are convinced that these events have been orchestrated by elements to manipulate us all into supporting policy at home and abroad. Some of the inconsistencies have to do with Flight 93. Now that was a plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. Did it crash naturally, i.e. by the fighting that occurred in the cockpit? Was it shot down? Will we ever know? I have a clip that runs for four minutes. It's pretty emotional. If you don't think you can take it, I suggest you go away for four minutes. Here it is. United 93, that traffic view is 1 o'clock, 12 miles east on 370. Negative contact, we're looking at United 93. Somebody call Cleveland. United 93, verify 350. United 93, verify your level uh, 350. United 93, verify your level of 350. United 93, Cleveland. United 93, Cleveland. United 
Yeah, we do have a smoke puff now at about, uh, oh, probably 2 o'clock. It appears to be just a uh, dark cloud, like a puff of black smoke. That's pretty emotional, hey? Well, we can only imagine what was going on on that plane at that time on Flight 93. Our guest tonight is going to give us an alternative view on what possibly could have happened at Ground Zero on September the 11th, 2001. He is James Fetzer, a professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota. James has published extensively in the philosophy of science and has edited many books on the death of JFK, which include Assassination Science and Murder in Daily Plaza. He also maintains a website devoted to this and related subjects at www.assassinationscience.com. James, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Kevin. Delighted to be here. Now, James, just give me a bit of background on Scholars for 9-11 Truth. Yes, well, I founded this society in December of 2005 and invited Steve Jones, the physicist from BYU, to be my co-chair. The, uh, the organization, which is a loose affiliation between academicians, scholars, experts in many different fields, uh, engineering, uh, science, uh, physics, and so forth, but also from social sciences and the humanities, took off like a rocket. We had uh, over 300 members uh, by June of 2006, when we uh, four of the more prominent members of this society participated in the American Scholars Conference organized by Alex Jones in Los Angeles, where C-SPAN came and, and uh, recorded an hour and 45-minute panel discussion, which included Steve Jones, my co-chair, Bob Bowman, who had directed the Star Wars uh, pro research program under two presidents and has a Ph.D. in nuclear engineering from Caltech, Webster Tarpley, the author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, who is one of our foremost experts on covert operations, and myself as the founder of Scholars. And what was so important about that event, Kevin, is that it was uh, subsequently broadcast uh, seven or more times by C-SPAN at very good uh, uh, viewer uh, times, good slots. And I think it had the effect of shattering the kind of artificial suppression of discussion of 9-11 in the United States. Okay, James, well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore one aspect of 9-11. You know, did two hijacked airliners bring down the Twin Towers? Or was it a controlled demolition pre-planned explosives that were strategically placed to bring down the buildings? So, James, in your opinion, what happened on 9-11 as you see it? Well, the official story, of course, that 19 Islamic fundamentalists hijacked these four commercial carriers outfoxed the most sophisticated air defense system in the world and perpetrated these atrocities under the guy and, the, and under the control of a man in a cave off in Afghanistan is simply uh, ridiculous on multiple counts. E e Elias Davidson, uh, a, a German now based in German, uh, Germany scholar, has published an article that the government has never produced any evidence that any of the hijackers were aboard any of the planes. David Ray Griffin in Global Research has published several articles establishing that the phone calls from the aircraft were all fake. None of them were genuine. Colonel George Nelson, a former U.S. Air Force uh, expert on air crashes, has observed that among the four planes there would have been millions of uniquely identifiable component parts and that the government has never produced even one of them. Uh, John Lear, who is perhaps our nation's most distinguished pilot, has observed that before a commercial plane can pull away from a terminal, the pilot must submit an envelope that includes a flight checklist, a flight plan, and so forth, and the number or names of the passengers aboard, but none of those envelopes were ever produced for any of those aircraft. And interestingly, the NTSB never conducted an investigation of any of these air crashes, uh, uh, which is extraordinary, and the only time it has occurred in American history when an FBI agent was asked why they weren't investigated, he responded, because we saw it on television, uh, we didn't have to investigate, but in fact, of the four crashes, only one was captured on television, namely Flight 175 hitting the South Tower. Uh, this was untrue of the others, although there is a, a footage by the Naudet brothers who were in lower Manhattan of uh, something hitting the North Tower, where its, its character is very obscure and it does not appear to be a Boeing 767. So that really what we are asked to do is to accept as an article of faith that the government's account is correct, 
And to compound the situation, it's even more remarkable that there was no military response to these hijackings. Ordinarily, there would have been a very prompt and forceful response. But on that particular day, oddly enough, something that the hijackers could not possibly have arranged, there was many as 17 different anti-terrorist drills taking place, which interdicted the normal correspondence between the NORAD and the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, leaving the planes completely impervious to any, any interception by American fighter jets. So on 9-11, um, as you see it again, when those planes hit the Towers 1 and 2, what occurred? Well, whether the planes hit the towers actually is a very interesting question, because as I've observed, the, the video evidence is highly uh, inconclusive, even dubious. In fact, the, the footage we have, the Hezer Connie footage and the Evan Fairbanks footage, uh, show very stunning anomalies. For example, that the 767 is traveling at approximately uh, 560 miles an hour, which is a it's cruising speed at 35,000 feet, but aerodynamically impossible at 700 to 1,000 feet, as even pilots for 9-11 Truth has confirmed. The manner in which the plane enters the building in the footage is very peculiar because it seems to merge into the building effortlessly. Uh, you don't see any damage to the building as the plane merges into the building, and this seems to violate all three of Newton's laws of motion, the ordinary crash physics, impact physics would have it that the plane ought to be crumpling, its wings breaking off, the engines might pass into the building, the tail would break off, body seats, luggage would fall to the ground, none of which happened. Uh, plus, if you count the number of frames it takes for the plane to pass through its own length into the building, you find it equals the number of frames it takes for the plane to pass through its own length in air, suggesting that the building posed no more resistance to the trajectory of the aircraft than air, and in addition, uh, Mike Sparks, uh, an astute student of these matters, has observed that the kind of cutouts we see on the side of the North and the South Tower, which very much resemble a plane, are rather like roadrunner cartoons. Uh, they appear highly artificial and contrived because an actual plane impact would have more like a, a, a core or center to it, but it wouldn't have the distinctive outline of an aircraft, the wings would have uh, broken off. Uh, they were hitting at a slight angle and so forth. In fact, in relation to the, the way in which the, the South Tower Flight 175 hit the building, it's actually intersecting with eight different floors, where each of those floors represented approximately an acre of concrete, four inches of concrete on steel trusses that were welded to the 47 core columns at the center and to the 240 external steel columns uh, outside of the building, which provide enormous horizontal resistance. So there really ought to have been a, a tremendous a collision, not unlike, say, a car running into a tree at high speed. So, okay, once the towers had collapsed, can we tell what the debris ex explains to us? I mean, what was in the dust in the debris? Yeah, let me, yeah, I'll back up. Of course, after we see a plane entering the building, and it's all the way inside the building before we get an explosion, which is also an impossibility because the wings of the plane are filled with the fuel, so they should have begun to explode immediately on contact with the, with the building. We do get this tremendous explosion, and the, most of the jet fuel, which is principally kerosene, gets, gets uh, expended in these enormous fireballs in about the first 10 or 15 seconds. Now, after that jet fuel has been consumed, what we have are relatively normal office fires, where the typical office fire burns at about 500 degrees Fahrenheit, far below what would be required to do any damage to the steel whatsoever. Indeed, uh, steel has a melting point of approximately 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, Underwriters Laboratory had certified the steel used in the construction of the buildings to 2,000 degrees for three to four hours without suffering any adverse effects, either weakening or melting, where NIST itself, Kevin, and this is really quite fascinating that the, everyone should appreciate, studied 236 samples of the steel and discovered that 233 of those samples had not been exposed to temperatures above 500 degrees Fahrenheit, or, as I observed, that of an ordinary office fire, and the other three not above 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, which means that since in the, north, uh, in the south tower the fires only burned for about an hour, in the north about an hour and a half, 
uh, these fires did not burn long enough or hot enough to weaken the steel, much less melt it. Indeed, this, this elaborately constructed steel structure represented an enormous heat sink so that if you had any concentration of heat in one part of it, it would be dissipated throughout the steel beams and members, making it virtually impossible for a steel structure building like this to collapse. Indeed, as I'm sure you were aware, neither before 9-11 nor after 9-11 has any steel structure a high-rise collapsed as a result of fire, and if our research is correct, that did not happen on 9-11 either. But surely, you know, that jet fuel started some, you know, immense fires, which would have meant the floor truss would have sagged, and um, I suppose critical beams would have moved as well, and uh, um, parameter walls well, would have been pulled in. I mean, surely this is what, what caused the, uh, the well, caused the floors to slam into each other. This is one of the stories that we get from, uh, from uh, the NIST, which is carrying the heavy water for the government here. For, for the first theory, which is rooted even in the 9-11 Commission report, has it that the, 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 the impact of the planes uh, affected some of the support columns, and the fires weakened the steel to bring about a pancake collapse. But to have a pancake collapse, the result, end result has to be a stack of pancakes, uh, which in the case of the 110-story Twin Towers would have been about somewhere around 15 stories high. In fact, these buildings were reduced below ground level, most of them being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. This is quite in striking contrast to the destruction of Building 7, a 47-story skyscraper in the vicinity of the uh, North Tower, which came down at 5.20 in the afternoon after having been hit by no aircraft, having had no jet fuel-based fires, and collapsed in a classic controlled demolition. You can see the explosions going from the bottom up the side to, uh, to the top. You have that characteristic kink. The building is coming down in a complete total and a symmetrical collapse. All the floors coming down at the same time in approximately the speed of freefall, about six and a half seconds which would require that all the support columns be demolished at the same time uh, to even take place. And in the end, Kevin, there was a stack of about five pancakes, five floors of rubble that represented the pancakes. But this was untrue at the North and South Tower, which are destroyed by some completely different uh, mode of demolition. No doubt it was a demolition that was under control, but it was not a classic controlled demolition because in the end we had no pancakes, all the floors had remained stationary until they uh, were waiting their turn to be blown to kingdom come in the memorable phrase of Morgan Reynolds. And in the end, uh, there were no pancakes, which makes that theory really quite uh, indefensible. And when you mention the trusses, by the way, NIST uh, did a lot of juggling, fudging their figures. If they needed a little increase in a factor here or a little increase in a factor there, they did it. Uh, it turned out that their actual study showed the floors would only have sagged about four and a half uh, inches or 4.2 inches, but in the end they had to uh, multiply that by 10 to get a 42-inch sag to bring about a kind, a different kind of induced collapse. But even if that had been true, you would have had a massive stack of pancakes. So the absence of the pancakes, and I even had Father Frank Morales, an Episcopal priest from St. Mark's Church, who was among the first responders on a radio show I host myself, several times explained that they were reduced below ground level, and indeed uh, photographs and footage taken that day confirms that fact. Yes, but surely couldn't the, uh, the concrete get pulverized just from the force of the you know, accelerated collapse of the building rather than the effects of a bomb? There would have been massive chunks of concrete. In fact, one of the mysterious features of the building is the lack of the kinds of debris you would expect. For example, there were, you know, massive uh, porcelain bathroom facilities, uh, toilets, uh, wash basins, the like. There were uh, desks and computers and chairs uh, and all that sort of thing. And, and, and none of that was found in the rubble. I mean, it's really quite astonishing what isn't present in what rubble as remains. And it is, it's also true, of course, that some chunks of steel were, were blown away from the building with enormous force. In fact, as uh, Paul Craig Roberts, one of America's leading public intellectuals, has observed, and he was a former assistant secretary to the Treasury under Ronald Reagan, 
there's a deficit here, in this case not a financial one, but an energy deficit, because the government's account, which depends exclusively on these fires and the force of gravity to bring these buildings down, could it possibly uh, yield that outcome? It's the, the NIST has never been able to even show a point of initiation for any collapse, and, and of course, as I take it, everyone knows, never modeled the presumptive collapse that would take place. Uh, on on uh, uh, my blog at jamesfetzer.blogspot.com in, in February, I have a, a blog about uh, new 9-11 photos released where I sequence them in an order that shows how these buildings were being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust, which eventually would envelop all of lower Manhattan. And also you can see a part of the North Tower, uh, one of the, some of the core columns that weren't initially destroyed, turning to dust right there in film footage that captures it, which is, as I explained, hardly surprising because of these two massive 500,000 ton buildings were being converted principally into very fine dust, and I'm talking about both the steel and the concrete, then it would not be, as we see from the gross observable evidence, it's hardly surprising that we would see parts of the towers that are being converted into very fine dust undergo that conversion themselves. So I highly recommend taking a look at the, the gross physical evidence we have of the towers, which you can find conveniently archived at that location. Okay, well, we'll put a, a link on our website for that. So, uh, so you're saying that the explosives were already planted in the towers before the planes hit? It does appear that that is the case. And indeed, uh, during the uh, radio program debate on Saturday and Sunday, toward the end of the program, one of the participants observed that the Ace Elevator Company had been involved in uh, uh, upgrading the elevators. It was described as the most massive elevator upgrade in history, and they were there for many months with a workforce of about some number of 68. And it appears to me the most reasonable conjecture about how uh, the priming of the building was taking place was using Ace Elevator Company and its, uh, its refurbishing of the elevators as the cover. That, that looks to me the most probable explanation for how it was set up. Okay, so as far as you're concerned, there were um, um, some sort of detonation that went off in the building, um, but um, not many. There was no sort of uh, documentation to say that people reported um, explosives going off. Oh yeah, sure there were. Of course, there were. You know, firemen after firemen, witness after witness reported explosions going off. If, if you check some of the classic documentaries on 9/11, go back to Loose Change, for example. Loose Change interviewed a half a dozen firemen who were reporting, boom, 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 a succession of explosions going off. If you take a look at the more recent uh, documentary study entitled Zero, uh, for zero evidence, uh, you're going to find the same thing. I, there's uh, an enormous amount of uh, witness reports of explosions taking place. And what's the official verdict of these explosions? Well, the government is, you know, wants largely to ignore all that. In fact, the government's not really very good at coming, being candid with the evidence. Let me offer you an illustration, which is that uh, uh, William Rodriguez was a senior custodian in the North Tower, and he was on, uh, the, there are six sub-basements in each of these buildings, and he was on uh, B1, as I recall, when he felt a, an enormous explosion beneath him that lifted him upward, uh, it destroyed a 50-ton hydraulic press. One of his co-workers showed up and had skin just hanging from his arms. It was a massive explosion, and it wasn't until uh, Willie was here in Madison and we had dinner together, and he talked about how the sub-basement was filled with water that I realized that the, the, this tremendous explosion uh, had to have multiple functions, one of which, of course, was to damaged core columns where they connected to the bedrock, which would be indispensable to promote the, the destruction of the building, but also to drain the, the water system, the sprinkler system that had been installed in the towers after an enormous fire in the North Tower in 1975 of water so they couldn't extinguish the rather modest office fires that remained after the jet fuel had all been expended. Indeed, that office fire on the 11th floor of the North Tower on the 13th of February, 1975, 
was far more extensive than the than the towers that uh, purportedly occurred in the in the twin towers. In fact, the, the the fire commander who got up to around the 78th floor said there were just two flo- two fires. They were relatively modest. He thought with a couple of lines they could put them out. Uh, and, and that appears to have been the event that triggered the destruction of the South Tower, because once those fires were extinguished, then there would be no remotely plausible explanation for what happened, happened to the buildings. But in the case of the fire in the North Tower in 1975, it burned far more intensely, around 2,000 degrees for three or four hours, enveloped the whole floor, and after it was done, none of the steel it had to be replaced. Uh, it didn't melt. It didn't collapse. And when you stop and think about some of the, you know, the collapse theories, uh, some of which, for example, was advocated a kind of a pile driver theory that was advocated during the coast-to-coast exchange by a fellow named Dave Thomas, uh, the theory is ridiculous. He's claiming the top 16 floors, you know, of the North Tower collapsed and then, you know, picked up the 17th and collapsed again. And he's looking at or thinking about, 16 floors in relation to one floor, whereas the entire structure was designed to support everything above it, so that the first floor is designed to support the 109 floors, the second, the 108, and so forth. In fact, John Skilling, who was one of the principal engineers for the company that designed the Twin Towers, observed that they had uh, an overload factor of at least 20 built into them, meaning that the the building at every level could support 20 times its expected live load, where the live load is the vacant floors, the, the, plus the office furniture and the personnel that would be expected to uh, occupy those spaces, so that there's no way that the kind of collapse that, the, the, that this fellow Thomas was advocating uh, could possibly be initiated. I mean, this, this is ignoring the fact that the fires didn't burn hot enough or long enough to weaken the steel, so there was no explanation for why it should have collapsed. And as I've already explained, actually, the word collapse is the wrong word to use because what's actually going on is these buildings are being demolished, converted mostly into uh, millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. And since there's an absence of pancakes, obviously no collapse is taking place. But what's most important about the 1975 fire is that while we can't re- reconstruct the buildings and test them, there was an experiment conducted on the 13th of February, 1975, on the 11th floor, and it vindicated Underwriters Laboratory certification of the steel that it could stand for three or four hours uh, at 2,000 degrees without suffering any weakening or melting, which is exactly what happened on that occasion in the North Tower. Well, was it true that British Steel, from 1993 to 2001, experimented with their steel structures to test the effects of extreme heat on steel, and their results were the structures never collapsed, but they um, they did sag? Well, I'm not familiar with that experiment, but you can't do better than actually dealing with the World Trade, uh, you know, the Twin Towers themselves, and this experiment. That, that took place inadvertently on the, in 1975 is a perfect vindication of underwriters' laboratory certification. I mean, look, steel uh, doesn't burn. I mean, you know, the, even I, the idea that you need some kind of uh, uh, fireproofing on steel is slightly ridiculous. The only reason for fireproofing around steel is to inhibit the spread of a fire from one floor to another. It's not really protecting the steel unless you get to a temperature around 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit, it's not going to melt. And the uh, other temperatures that are reduced, say, half of that temperature, 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit, for example, has sometimes been claimed to induce significant weakening of the steel, was simply not attained on 9-11. As I've explained, the jet fuel burned up in those uh, spectacular fireballs, and besides, the highest temperature you can, in the first 15 seconds or so, and the highest temperature you can obtain with a jet fuel-based fire under optimal conditions in a controlled environment when it's force-fed pure oxygen is only 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which is still 1,000 degrees below the melting point, and, and, and also uh, not going to uh, bring about... The, the, the kind of effects that are attributed here. I, I mean, bear in mind, those fires were distributed asymmetrically. There's some here, there was some there. For a collapse to occur, you'd have to have all the support columns, uh, in the 240 external and the 47 core columns, 
collapse at the same time. That's ridiculous. Even if the, the steel had been, and, and obviously since the temperature didn't get high enough to cause the steel to, to melt, uh, even as I'm suggesting much less weakened as, as the NIST's own sampling of those 236 pieces of steel it selected from the crash site, from, from the uh, scene of the destruction, uh, supports, uh, you would have had asymmetrical sagging, tilting. It would have been very gradual. Uh, a, a, a high school math and physics uh, teacher by the name of Chuck Baldwin, uh, whom I have interviewed several times on my radio show, The Real Deal, uh, has explained that based on his calculations, actually the support being provided by the lower floors was even greater than skilling estimated. So if you take the, if you assume the plane hit around the 94th floor and then divide it uh, into the upper 16 floors and the bottom uh, 94, remember those bottom 94 were stone cold steel. They weren't affected by any fires. And, and he, he, by his calculation, because of the tapering of the steel, it's five inches, then four, three, and so forth, it's rather thin at the top, is so much less that the relative uh, weight in relation to the rest of the building is on the order of, if you take the top 16 floors to be one unit of downward force due to gravity, then the upward support by the other uh, 94 floors represented 199 units of upward force. So there's just no way a collapse could take place. And indeed, the official scenario, uh, or, or this, uh, this Dave Thomas scenario of uh, uh, comparing it to a, a, a jackhammer is quite ridiculous because for a, or a pile driver, for a pile driver, a jackhammer to work, of course, you've got to have the force taken back and then asserted again. It's as though you could take that top 16 force up and then smash it down up and smash it down up and smash it down. In fact, Chuck did an estimate of what it would take for the top 16 floors, uh, how far it would have to fall uh, through space to bring about any kind of destruction of the lower floors. It was on the order of over 100 miles out into space. The situation with the South Tower is even more absurd because, as you may know, Kevin, the top 30 floors of the South Tower uh, pivoted and started to fall at an angle into the street when, as even Stephen Jones observed in his chapter in 9-11 in American Empire, edited by David Ray Griffin and Peter Dale Scott, when it started to get toward the horizontal, it turned into dust. It never reached the ground. It was converted into dust. Now, what that means is what you had in the South Tower was 80 floors of stone-cold steel, and you didn't even have the 16 floors of the North Tower to collapse on it, because once that 30 floors had tilted, it obviously wasn't exerting any downward pressure on those bottom 80 floors. So the, the official accounts we're getting are not only strained, they're actually absurd once you understand the physics of the situation. So then what would cause that fine dust? What would cause that fine powdery composition of, 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 the, of the concrete? I mean, uh, what kind of explosive would do that? Well, that's a very interesting question. In fact, that's one of the areas of current research. Now, Stephen Jones and other members of uh, a group with which he is allied, including uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, whose head is Richard Gage, who's been making many uh, trips around the country and offering presentations, uh, is seeking to explain it on the use, basis of the use of uh, an incendiary known as thermite, uh, possibly in one of its more sophisticated forms known as thermate, where thermate is thermite combined with sulfur, where the presence of sulfur reduces the temperature at which steel can be cut. But it's obvious that thermite or thermate or even something called nanothermite, uh, 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 an even more sophisticated version, can't have been responsible for what we witnessed on 9-11. At least it cannot be responsible alone, because all it does is it cuts steel. And in cutting the steel, you're dependent upon gravity as the force that's going to bring buildings down. Now, there are many kinds of uh, demolition projects where thermite or thermate or even nanothermite might be uh, sufficient, but you're going to have a massive pile of debris at the end, and that's what's missing here. So that even Richard Gage, for example, when he's per, uh, questioned about it, 
will say that the, the thermite had to be combined with explosives to attain explosive force. And the key to understanding this difference is the following, Kevin. Thermite doesn't produce gases whose rapid expansion brings about explosions. For example, when, when water is converted from a liquid into steam, it expands in volume by 1,600 times. So the, the water that previously occupied a cubic inch now as steam occupies 1,600 cubic inches. That's a huge expansion. And it's that kind of expansion of gases that creates the explosive force that rips things apart. Thermite as such is a cutting capacity uh, device. It's not explosive. So it has to be combined with other things that are explosive to, to give it explosive capacity which I've observed on occasion is therefore like toothpaste. Toothpaste isn't explosive, but if you combine it with other with explosives, then it becomes explosive. The problem is to figure out what, what could have brought about this, this complete and total, virtually total destruction of the Twin Towers and the amount of time involved here. And the, the, the theories, which are actively under exploration, uh, I interview many guests on my show to talk about the alternatives, include uh, many nukes, third or fourth generation weapons, some that may be pure fusion, which I'm told can be constructed as, in as, as small a space as the size of a matchbook, or lasers, or masers, or plasmoids, or some kind of directed energy weapon, or uh, possibly... Uh, the uh, directed energy weapon, uh, like a laser, could have been used to trigger off some of the explosions, but it, it had to be very uh, uh, elaborate. And let me just mention that while uh, the, there have been uh, criticisms from the thermite group of those who advocate directed energy weapons, uh, they're, they're, the military has developed a vast arsenal of directed energy weapons, and if you go, which can be ground-based or airborne or space-based. Uh, Bob Bowman, whom I mentioned before as the director of the Star Wars Research Project, has recently acknowledged that the project was always offensive. It was never defensive, as though it was sold that way to the American public. And obviously you can't have an offensive Star Wars project without man mounting weapons in, in satellites. Plus, it's very interesting that Webster Tarpley in his book, 9-11 uh, Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, uh, cites the work of Jim Hoffman, about the destruction of the Twin Towers, where Hoffman is observing that what's going on here is happening so fast and so thorough, and the conversion of these buildings into very fine dust, that he conjectures that some kind of directed energy weapon may have been involved. And later in Webster's book, he cites the possible use of a chemical laser for having uh, shot down Flight 93, if indeed uh, such a flight uh, actually did take place, because they Certainly the evidence of a plane crashing at Shanksville is virtually uh, non-existent. There were no plane parts at the, at the site. It looked, uh, well, George Nelson, whom I mentioned before, said it looked to him as though someone had taken a bulldozer out there, dug a ditch, filled it with trash, and blown it up. Uh, what's most important about the government's account there, Kevin, if you'll you know, allow me to talk about this case ever so briefly, sure. is if the plane crashed, if the plane crashed there, then, of course, it's full of the bodies of the passengers, so they should have brought out the bright lights and the heavy equipment and started digging to recover the passengers' bodies or in the hope that by some miracle that someone might have survived. But, of course, none of that was done. Reporters and photographers were kept a 1,000 yards away. And when it was all tidied up afterwards, they even trimmed the bushes that had been singed or burned in the vicinity so they couldn't be subjected to chemical analysis to determine whether or not that singeing or burning had been brought about by jet fuel fires. So, I mean, the, the situation here with 9-11 is, is, is really, it's a, it's a house of cards, it's a charade, it's a hoax. And it's really quite stunning that the American people should have been fed, the, the world, in fact, fed such a, such a line of malarkey. Yes, but I mean, okay, if explosives were used with the with the thermite or nanothermite, um, surely on the on the night of the evening of the rescue operation, there was uh, you know specially trained dogs there that uh, would have uh, also sensed uh, be able to be able to pick up the explosives as well because they they were explosives dogs as well, um, but that they never reported anything in the case of. Um, well, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, thermite thermite isn't an explosive. But I, I haven't, uh, you know, seen exactly what the dogs were sniffing. But if I'm right, you know, that the, the uh, ACE elevator overhaul was really the pretext. 
the, the crew involved there would have had access to all the vital parts of the building. And, you know, as far as the, the, the thermites, the, the sniffing dogs, I, I can't answer that question. Uh, you know, uh, that's an interesting oddity. But, but nothing adds up here, Kevin. Look at it this way. Uh, those two buildings were constructed in what was known as the bathtub. There was a, like a dike or a, a moat that surrounded the basements of those buildings to keep the Hudson River water out from flowing in. Now, if those buildings, which, as I mentioned, weighed 500,000 tons, had actually collapsed into the bathtub, it would have shattered the bathtub. Just to give you a contrast, when they were cleaning up, uh, after 9-11 to bring down Building 6, which only had an eight-story high building. They used cables and tractors to pull it down gently because they didn't want to damage the bathtub. Well, just imagine what, you know, the, the great mass from 500,000-ton buildings would have done to the bathtub. That would have allowed the Hudson River water to flood beneath lower Manhattan. It would have flooded the, the subway tunnels, the, the path train tunnels over to New Jersey, and it would have, uh, you know, affected the foundations of the most valuable real estate in the world. So I'm uh, convinced that the reason they had to convert these buildings into millions of tons of very fine dust was to save the bathtub and keep this catastrophe from occurring, which obviously isn't something that uh, 19 alleged Islamic terrorists would have been uh, concerned about. They'd want the more damage, the better, presumably, if they actually were engaged in this activity. Well, let me just mention in passing, by the way, that when Osama bin Laden was first told about uh, this event, he said that he, he disavowed responsibility. He said he thought it was a government within the government of the United States, and he observed that killing innocent women children is, is, is contrary to the tenets of Islam. And I might add, by the way, that the FBI subsequently issued a wanted poster for Osama, but it said nothing about 9-11. When Ed Haas, who's the editor of the Muckraker Report, in, inquired Rex Toome, who was a spokesman for the FBI, told him that the reason there was no uh, statement about 9-11 uh, in relation to Osama bin Laden was because the FBI had no hard evidence that connected Osama bin Laden to the crime. And that is one of the few true statements that we have gotten from the Bush administration or even the American government since. So um, has dust samples from um, Ground Zero at the time ever been tested by an independent lab that would find uh, traces, maybe, of the um, uh, thermite material? Well, mind, mind you, while I'm not a, you know, I, 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 I think that uh, thermite uh, cannot possibly explain what happened on 9-11. There is a group of scholars, uh, including uh, uh, Niels Herrett, among others, who actually appeared on Coast to Coast, that did publish in the Bentham, uh, Bentham Open Science Physical Chemistry Journal an article reporting the results of their study of dust samples, which had been uh, especially initiated by Stephen Jones, where they did find uh, some, you know, what they took to be residue of nanothermite. They, they, they have some photographs here that they look sort of like a hamburger patty with a piece of cheese on top of it. Uh, well done hamburger patty with a piece of cheese, except they're more or less black and red in the photographs. Now, another interesting example uh, aspect of the study of the dust samples, however, is that this group has reported finding microscopic iron spheres uh, in the dust, where a, a, a chemical engineer with whom I'm de doing research has made the observation that if the if the, if the, if the uh, tonnage of steel was being converted into microscopic iron spheres, then it was unavailable to constitute pools of molten metal, the existence of which I've long been skeptical about, where, you know, this seems to me to be one of the least defensible aspects of the, the, the theory involving the use of thermite, uh, because those massive pools of molten metal don't appear to exist. Indeed, uh, one would surmise that uh, since some 11 million gallons of water were poured on the ground zero in the first day or two, that if there had been massive pools of molten metal, it would have precipitated some kind of steam eruption or explosion. And while you can see in many photographs, and here uh, Dr. Judy Wood uh, on her website, drjudywood.com, has amassed the most comprehensive collection of photographs showing in time sequence 
the, what happened at Ground Zero, the attempts to clean it up and the importation of hundreds of thousands of tons of dirt that were added to the dirt pile so that when Rudy Giuliani, the mayor, boasted about getting these dump trucks there to clean out the debris, uh, he didn't point out that they were bringing in massive quantities of dirt that was added to the debris pile so that across time, if you study Judy's photographic sequence, the debris pile was actually increasing in size rather than decreasing, which is reminiscent of Chernobyl when the, 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 the Russians had their nuclear reactor meltdown at Chernobyl. They brought in vast quantities of dirt to absorb uh, the, the residue from the radiation. And the fact that vast quantities of dirt were brought into the uh, ground zero is very suggestive that something was remained that made it, uh, you know, created problems and needed to be dealt with, uh, among other ways, by the importation of vast quantities of dirt. So as I say, uh, we don't have all this quite sorted out, but I think we're getting a pretty good impression that something was going on here that was extremely odd. And when you stop and consider that Building 7 was long since rebuilt, and yet they're still having difficulty getting going with a so-called Freedom Tower and so forth, that's very suggestive that possibly there were some sort of uh, residual physical chemical remnants that were making it very, very difficult to create a foundation that would remain stable across time, given the in continuing uh, active uh, capacities of these, these residues. So it, this is really fascinating stuff, Kevin. And, I, you know, it's a challenge to anyone who has an interest in, in not only solving one of the great mysteries of all time, namely how this was done, but in uh, appreciating, you know, the, the role of politics and the intelligence agencies and the agenda which appears to have driven this, which seems to have revolved around uh, three motives, oil taking control of the vast uh, resources of oil in Iraq, uh, Israel uh, dismembering the most sophisticated Arab state, which was Iraq, where uh, they not only had a sophisticated infrastructure providing reliable water and electricity, which even over all these years of the American occupation has not been restored, but they had a national health care system, they had a national system of education, they had museums and antiquities dating back thousands of years. And, of course, the Israelis resented Saddam because he was supportive of the Palestinians and their cause and uh, was providing bounties of $25,000 to families of uh, suicide bombers. So the Israelis didn't like that at all. And then, of course, third, there were these neocons who tended to be uh, Zionists and supportive of the creation of a greater Israel who wanted to take uh, the historical moment of the United States being the sole remaining superpower given the demise of the Soviet Union and project American force into the Middle East where it could then be projected outward in the geopolitically sensitive area. Uh, they, of course, went out of their way to sell us the idea that an attack in Iraq would pay for itself. It would be effortless, take no time at all. We'd be, we'd be welcomed by, you know, Iraqis throwing flower petals in our path. But they also wrote, you know, that many of them belong to the think tank known as Project for the New American Century. And they wrote that the problem here was that uh, most Americans, given our history and legacy, might be uh, hesitant to undertake wars of aggression that were so contrary to our values, and that it, it might be necessary that there should be some precipitating uh, incident that would coalesce support for taking these actions, such as, and this was their phrase, a new Pearl Harbor, so that David Ray Griffin's first book, and he's now written seven or eight, including one about Saddam, who, uh, Osama, about Osama bin Laden, dead or alive, which, which distills the evidence which indicates that Osama actually died around December 15th of 2001, and where his appearances since then in audio and visual versions have all been faked or contrived, something I wrote about in a press release for scholars many years ago, and, and where uh, Griffin has uh, laid out the case against the 9-11 Commission, in, among others, his book, The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions, but also in many other ways. In fact, one of his most recent books is about uh, Building 7 
and the unscientific quality of the NIST account of Building 7, which it took forever uh, to present, but where we have, you know, all the evidence shows this was a classic controlled uh, demolition. Uh, you can find a famous uh, Danish uh, demolitions expert who was shown Building 7 said, of course, this was a controlled demolition without knowing that it was a part of the World Trade Center and had had gone down on 9-11, which rather astonished him. There has to be, Kevin, a vast number of, of uh, mechanical and structural engineers and physicists in the country who know that the official story of 9-11 is a crock, that it's utterly unsustainable, that it violates laws of engineering and of physics, and yet who have yet, haven't shown the courage to speak up, although there are promising signs. For example, uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth now has some 1,400 members. And if anyone wants to get an introduction, you know, to the breadth and depth from the, uh, you know, academicians and other experts, including in government and the intelligence agencies, they should go to PatriotsQuestion911.com, a website created by Alan Miller that has now over 2,000, uh, probably closer to three, uh, experts across different fields, scholars in all fields, uh, medical uh, experts, government experts, and all that, uh, just to see their bio sketches, uh, their background and credentials, and the statements they make about 9-11. Okay. Nothing, yeah, nothing incidentally, Kadam, epitomizes the interaction of the government, uh, the intelligence agencies, the government, and the mass media than a report that was made by the BBC at 4.57 uh, p.m. Uh, the afternoon of 9-11, in, in which... Uh, the reporter, a woman, explained that the Building 7 had collapsed. Jane Stanley was her name. And ironically, over her shoulder in the background, you could see Building 7 still standing. She referred to it as the Solomon Brothers building because when the Solomon Brothers bought some 20 floors of the building, they completely rebuilt it. It was such a robust building, erected over two enormous electrical generators, by the way, so that, in my opinion, this may be the most robust building ever ever constructed, ever designed by the hand of, of man. Uh, but, of course, the actual destruction of the Building 7 wouldn't take place for 23 more minutes. Yes, but... So but. it's really quite a stunning case. Yeah, but wasn't Building 7... Um, reported to have uh, obviously been hit by the Twin Towers when they collapsed, and obviously this caused, you know, pretty hot fires within the building, so the building was creaking and bending, and this had been reported by firefighters, so hadn't the BBC been informed of this, that, uh, you know, the, the structure was bending and a possible collapse was inevitable? No, I think, you're, I think you're quite mistaken, Kevin. There is a fake photograph in the New York uh, Police Department collection that shows some damage to the front of the building, but it was very modest as far as damage from debris from the North Tower. The fires were almost non-existent. If you get good photographs of fires, they, 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 they were very few and far between. They were not significant. Someone had turned off the alarm system, by the way, something like 6.45 in the morning, so that it was on a test status so that no alarm would be sent in. There is a fellow named Barry Jennings who was with the emergency response uh, a unit in New York who went there in the belief that Rudy Giuliani would have gone to his command and control center, which was on like the 23rd and the 24th floor. When he got up there, he found there was uh, coffee that was still steaming, sandwiches half eaten, and someone came and grabbed him and said, we got to get out of here. And he said as they were going out of the building, and this is in the morning now, there were lots of explosions going on. One stairwell was virtually blown out from under him. He couldn't see them, but he was convinced he was stepping over dead bodies. Finally, some firemen got him out of the building. His testimony from the inside of Building 7 is quite stunning. And, of course, in my opinion, not very surprisingly, Barry Jennings has uh, since departed the living. I'm just afraid that those who have, you know, enough information that's damaging enough to the government's official story uh, aren't going to live a long, uh, healthy, happy life. And, uh, you know, with regard to Building 7, while the claim was, has been made that there were diesel fuel tanks that exploded there, 
uh, and there were some diesel fuel tanks in the building. Diesel is non-explosive and burns at a very low temperature, so that's not the explanation. What we have with Jane Stanley, alas, is simply the BBC getting ahead of the script in relation to the events of 9-11. Now, something you mentioned before uh, regarding the, uh, the Twin Towers was the, uh, the work on the elevator shaft, uh, the shafts of, of the two towers. Now, now, tell me a bit about the, the ACE elevator people and, and why they should be investigated, because this is quite important to the whole you know, key core factor of the destruction of the Twin Towers, isn't it? Well, I, qu I quite agree, because I have been trying to figure out how this could have been done. So it was only during an interview uh, I just did with Chuck Baldwin that he mentioned that at the end of the program, uh, someone had brought up that Ace Elevator had been involved in this uh, refurbishing of the elevators, and that was uh, spanned out over something like six months, and that it involved a crew of around 68 people. And it's, it, it's apparent to me, even from that sketch of the situation, that this is just what would be required as the perfect kind of cover story in order to prep the building over a long period of time for an event like this. So while I cannot say that this is uh, you know, definitive without doing more research, I say on its face it's highly probable in my judgment, having been involved in 9-11 research as long as I have, and with, with, with my background as a professional philosopher who has taught logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning for 35 years before my retirement in June of 2006, that this is a very plausible explanation for how the buildings were prepped for the events of 9-11. This matter took a lot of planning for a long period of time, and it seems to me that there's a piece of the puzzle that seems to fit perfectly. Okay, okay, so in your opinion, James, uh, Larry Silverson, the owner of World Trade Center 7, what did he mean by pull it? Did he mean, like, pull the building down or pull the firefighters out of the building as they knew it was, uh, you know, creaking and, and swaying, perhaps? Well, Larry Silverstein gave, a, gave an interview, which you can find on, um, you know, YouTube with PBS, where he said that he was in a conversation with the Ur fire commander, and that verbal pause suggests to me he knew the same person under a different designation, that there had been so much death and devastation, maybe the best thing was to do was to pull it. He said they made the decision to pull, and we watched the building come down. Now, I, as a professional philosopher, I spend my time analyzing language, and both in terms of syntax, semantics, and pragmatics, it fits the suggestion that it be uh, taken out by, by uh, controlled demolition. This is a rather common term in construction. You occasionally hear denials but those who are, by those who would rather that the truth not be known, but I think the evidence is quite overwhelming that he was talking about a controlled demolition and that it could not have been done unless the building had been prepped for demolition, just as in the case of the Twin Towers, even though the mode of demolition was quite different since in the case of Building 7, we have a classic controlled demolition uh, from, from roughly the bottom up. And in the case of the Twin Towers, we have a non-classic controlled demolition from the top down. But then why collapse Building 7? What was so important about Building 7? Oh, I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, all of the, the SEC had its headquarters uh, there with all the records from the Enron case, for example, and many investigations it was undertaking. The FBI and the CIA had offices there. It, it, it appears that this had something to do with the destruction of all those documents and records, assuming that Building 7 was not involved in relation to the destruction of the Twin Towers. I've, uh, I, at one point in time, in late uh, 2006, when I had an interview with Judy Wood and she was suggesting that it could have been some form of directed energy weapon, uh, I contemplated the possibility that given those two enormous electrical generators uh, beneath Building 7, that possibly it could have been involved here. I still don't rule that out, by the way. But I do think that the destruction of Building 7 was probably motivated by purely financial greed on the part of big corporations and big banks that had to, would benefit from the destruction of the documents and records that were reposed there. Was it not true that um, the, the Twin Towers had, had gone from sort of a publicly owned building to a privately owned uh, uh, building so just a, you know, after half a year before the destruction of, of, of the, the towers? Yeah, 
Actually, formally, it was only six weeks before, Kevin, so you're asking a very interesting question. Yes, Larry Silverstein took private control of the buildings for the first time in their history. Uh, their construction began in 1966. They were open for tenancy in 1970. Uh, and he immediately dismissed the security company that had been guarding the buildings ever since they had been open in 1970. Uh, and he replaced them with, uh, uh, with two companies, one uh, ICTS, which is an Israeli firm that also was responsible for security at the airports from which the flights originated, and then an outfit called Securicom that the, uh, one of the Bush brothers, uh, Marvin, had been a director and were a Bush cousin, Work Walker III, was a chief executive officer. Uh, Barbara Bush even wrote in an autobiography that coincidentally the contract with Securicom expired on 9-11, uh, which, which is quite a remarkable uh, coincidence. But in any case, it does appear to be the, that uh, Larry Silverstein took a great interest in changing the, the way in which the buildings were being maintained. Well, James, in your opinion, what's the importance of the uh, steel uh, from the Twin Towers being rushed away to China for recycling? Well, I, I, I have two different ways of, of, of accounting for this. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was, uh, was cleaning up awfully fast, and there were fire chiefs and inspectors who were complaining at the time that they needed to study the steel that was being removed from the scene of this crime, and they weren't allowed to do so. So there was a, a protest coming from the formal entities that had responsibility for conducting investigation of, the, of what had actually happened here. I do believe that since so much of the steel was converted into very fine dust, that they wanted to have a cover story for what happened to that vast quantity of steel. And I think some of the claims that it was sent off to China are probably fabricated just to conceal the fact that so much of the building was converted into dust. Uh, that's a very convenient cover story. But the fact of the matter is a lot of the stuff was also taken to uh, fresh kills and dumped and made inaccessible again for investigation, though I suppose that those who were sufficiently diligent might be able to track down some of the remnants. Uh, other parts of it uh, uh, purportedly were used to, uh, uh, for the construction of a, of a ship, a U.S. naval vessel, so that, you know, they, they, several things happened here. But certainly, uh, just as the FBI agent reported, there was no investigation. NTSB didn't investigate any of these crash sites. And the way in which the, the buildings were analyzed by NIST was completely and obviously hopeless as a responsible scientific physical investigation of what had happened on 9-11, I'm very sorry to say. Okay, now, if explosions had gone off at the, uh, the World Trade Centers, and, of course, Building 7 as well, surely there must be some sort of seismic activity that re was recorded at all? Or? Oh, that's great. Yeah, excellent. In fact, the explosions that Willie Rodriguez reported registered at 0.7 and 0.9 on the Richter scale. Now, we have two scholars, Gordon Ross and Craig Furlong, who were so struck by Willie's report that these explosions had taken place in the sub-basement prior to reverberations from high in the building from the I I impacts of the, the planes, that they undertook a very detailed uh, analysis. They obtained very precise FAA and radar data about when the presumptive plane impacts occurred, and also, of course, uh, seismic information from uh, a laboratory maintained by Columbia University, and they were able to determine that the explosions in the sub-basements of the two buildings occurred as much as 11 to 14 seconds prior to the reverberations from above. And they have actually sought to uh, reassess their study. They now have a third version of the study, which you can find on the Journal for 9-11 Studies website, uh, and it's entitled uh, Seismic Proof 9-11 Was an Inside Job where they have reduced the interval of time to perhaps as low as 11 seconds, but the fact is they've not been able to reverse the order so that these explosions in the sub-basements of the two buildings clearly occurred before any reverberations from the impacts of what were supposed to be the planes high in the towers. Okay, so James, where do you go from here? I mean, where's your work taking you? What's the ultimate goal for you right now? 
Well, I'm glad you asked, Kevin, because I was recently in the UK on the 14th of July. I, I, I participated in a symposium that I had organized on uh, debunking the war on terror, where uh, I presented a, a lecture entitled uh, Our Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan Justified by 9-11, and I gave a summary overview of the kinds of uh, points that I've been discussing with you. The symposium was chaired by Ken O'Keefe, who was a hero from the Freedom Flotilla. This is the fellow who disarmed a couple of the Israeli commandos uh, when they came down from helicopters to board the ships, and his face, bloodied but unbowed, was transmitted around the world in photographs. Uh, also, Kevin Barrett, and a very prominent 9-11 activist and the co-founder of Muslims for 9-11 Truth, gave a presentation about the moral and political aspects of all this. And then Jillian Oxman, a, a, a famous uh, jazz musician and also outspoken critic of Zionism, did a dissection of the political rhetoric that has been used to justify uh, these, these wars in violation of international law, the U.N. Charter, and even the U.S. Constitution. Uh, so uh, we did uh, tape those programs in the DVD for part one, my presentation is going to be uploaded to Google Video even as we speak. In part two, as soon as it's prepared, we'll join it. So uh, I am continuing my efforts to bring the truth about these events to, to the American people and to everyone else in the world. Though I must say, I think most of those who uh, reside in other countries have a much more clear sense of what happened on 9-11 that this was indeed a, a rogue action by a government within a government, just as Osama suggested, for the sake of corrupt motives involving oil, Israel, and ideology, as I have explained. Okay, James, we're approaching the bottom of the hour here, so uh, what's your website address? The, the Scholar's website is 911scholars.org, where you can also get access to the Scholar's Forum. Plus, I, my blog is at jamesfetzer.blogspot.com, where you can find some of my best work on 9-11, but also on JFK, other false flag operations, and a host of other important issues. Kevin, I can't thank you enough for featuring me on your show. No, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you very, very much. To find out more on James Fetzer, go to www.themoreshow.co.uk and look up James Fetzer under past guests. So until next time, be safe.